Tonight is the second uh, class on anger and insight. <coughs> Hopefully as we discuss the anger we gain insight <coughs> I feel like we're going right into the beast within. <laughs> it's where all the fairy tales take place. I, I particularly like doing that. I don't think there's anything sacred or anything we need to fear. So let's just move into it. See what's going on here. And so uh, tonight we're going to talk about some of the uh, issues. We spoke a little bit last time about uh, the issue of fairness and we'll go over that in a more, with more depth. Uh, but also to look more deeply at the issues that seem to... Uh, lead to the sort of irritations of daily life which when they're unchecked of course move into anger and if they're still unchecked into rage etc. So we're going to look at that and then next week we're going to find out how to transform the anger. How to work with it in a way that is very helpful but even as we speak tonight we'll look at some of the ways to effectively work with it and I hope everybody picked up the homework assignment homework assignment uh, is on the table there Uh, and uh, we'll begin to uh, give us exercises practical actions for working with this mind state we talk uh, about in hospice care we talk about uh, a lot about grief and how uh, when the bereaved person loses someone, when we lose someone, it opens or accesses us to the repository of grief that is there, that is beyond just that specific loss. It really blankets the loss of all existence, of all of our losses in life. And as I began to... um, look at anger I believe that anger does the same thing I believe that when we get angry that it's not at only at the specific incident but that there is a there is accumulation of anger that many of us have lived with and we haven't known how to dissipate it we haven't known how to let it go and so many of us have learned to carry this repository of anger around with us and it has become so intimately involved in our identity that it becomes almost like the posture or the way or the psychic stance that we take to life itself. It certainly has a great deal of its cause in our family of origin but we have perpetuated that struggle because of the positionality we take in relationship to anything that goes on. And I think most of us know people who the the mechanism, the way that they defend themselves is through aggressiveness, through assertiveness, through coming at you. Or other people who fall back and implode with a situation and use it for some sort of self-abuse why was I, what's the matter with me, that sort of angry response that turns inward. I, um, for those of you who are familiar with the Thai culture, not to pick on Thailand, but it's one of the cultures outside of the West that I'm most familiar with, it um, has um, a cultural mandate to be very polite and gentle. And they bow and they're just very polite and soft-spoken. And I remember as a monk, uh, there were many occasions when that sort of politeness erupted and you could see uh, the hostility and rage that often was being covered by that cultural um, uh, imperative to be polite. And yet it's not politeness as such it's politeness as as a way to get along in the world but what it hides below the surface 
is often an explosive rage. And I think it's real important. Now this isn't for this isn't everyone. Everyone doesn't look out with that kind of angry stance, but it's for those of us that it does resonate with, for us be, to begin to really get a sense of that in us. When we wake up, how is it that we look upon the world, that first alarm clock ring? Bam! <laughs> how is it that we respond? to the opening of our eyes what, how is it that we look out upon the world and if there is a certain emotional intonation that we give to the world as a set way that we're prepared to act as a way to manage our way through the world aggressive or assertive or angry and the sign of cynicism that many of us have lived with especially those of us I think who have lived through the ideal ages of the 50s and 60s like myself into the more realistic times when resources are have become increasingly depleted and the scarcity of the world is beginning to be known to us in ever um, more exaggerated ways that we begin to know that our lives have to be limited in some way and there's a sort of a cynicism that comes out of this when your ideals are broken or shocked or when the world doesn't substantiate them and how we begin to just kind of have a sort of a sinister way of just approaching things and I see this as being rampant uh, in the West and I've seen many people in meditation well the meditation isn't working you know and they throw it out never realizing that if they were just to use the meditation on the very stance that they're taking to like themselves they would find it working very effectively but they keep meditation out there as something that is supposed to uh, uh, again build the utopia that we all seek rather than the actuality that we all face and then again of course in that cynicism when the utopia isn't reached when that ideal isn't grasp a hold of when we don't become that perfect person that our spiritual endeavors are aimed at then of course the cynicism comes back in again <clears throat> but I, the practice can always be applied right there right the way we look out just feel it feel it let that view be understood be embraced be seen so tonight I'd like to go into the three main causes of anger as I see them and maybe you'll come up with others but sort of the root causes I mean Buddhists they talk about ignorance being the root cause well if we're operating in any relationship to any of these things ignorance is behind the scenes there not seen clearly is what ignorance is about Fairness, we spoke a little bit about last week and we'll go a little more into this week. Loss of control. Loss of control. And then uh, there's one that um, I think uh, we have to include here and that's being discounted or insignificant or confrontation of self-worth. Now, when I looked at these three up close, they um, have a, they're sort of a, a bound rope with the in individual uh, segments of the rope all being wrapped together it's hard to separate out those three but you can look upon those three as being intertwined but also from different perspectives you can see how they govern our behavior So let me just take an example. Um, if if one of our fairness issues is um, is uh, somehow stepped upon, what we we've lined up the world to be a fair way, fair uh, surface here, fair um, activities 
circumstances will be fair everybody will treat each other fairly and when that is approached and stepped upon we feel out of control in terms of our view of what life is supposed to be about and we feel unsettled about that and in some ways the way our view of life has been negated in that instant when big fish eat small fish when children die before their parents when you get arrested and the speeder doesn't (laughs) these are issues of fairness I remember I was driving without um, use of a speedometer (laughs) so I would drive traffic speed figuring that if I drove traffic speed they'd never pick me up well a policeman stopped me and my defense was everybody else was going this fast and he said well you're going 75 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone I said well everybody else is doing it he said arrest them don't just arrest me see I don't have any speedometer so then he arrested me for that too (laughs) 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 and whether the world wasn't fair in that moment for me (laughs) And uh, when we're pushed on that fairness issue, uh, we're often pushed, you know, we come out with a worst case scenario. Well, what about this? What about torture? And, I mean, is that fair? And what about... But it's all the same thing. It's a mind-created idea of how the world is. It's generated by your depiction of the rightness of things or how the rightness should work you're playing God you are bestowing upon the world this your day of creation in terms of your fairness but that has nothing at all to do with how the world is now I think what we're afraid of you see is that if we give up that fairness well what will motivate me I mean I can't just I can't be in an unfair world and say that's okay I mean with people hitting each other and abusing each other and running over and stepping on my feet wrecking into me but we forget the essence of what this Buddhist teaching is it's love and we cover over our basic connectedness with our ideas of fairness and hold off that more basic fundamental affection with our ideas of how that affection should work how it should translate how everyone should interact in terms of that if we just let it go go let our issues of fairness go and move much more basically into that more primal and basic affection that is not something that we have to cultivate but is something that resides within us when we are freed of our ideas about how life should be and let that govern us then there's a whole different way that life is seen and we respond from compassion not from fairness you did this now you have to get you're bad you go to the end of the line but rather from a whole heart self sense of clarity and compassion and basic human warmth but instead what we do is we hold on to the righteousness of the view and we have it all lined up we think we know everyone's place in things You know, it's one, it's one thing <coughs> when nature is unfair, when the tornado or the hurricane or the earthquake or the rain brings a mudslide. Somehow I can, I don't like it, but it's hard to be angry at the rain. But when my neighbor, that's another thing, when he do, or she does it, 
It's one thing when God does it. <laughs> it's another thing when Sam, my next door neighbor, lets his dog loose. See, we have it, we have it all lined up. And it's, it's at the essence of what we're doing here in meditation is to see things the way they are, not the way we would love them to be if we wrote a book. So what is it? How is life? Well, in any shape shape, or form or any way that we read the tea leaves and look at our life situation, we see that it's basically unfair. There's no way that we can reconcile death into this picture of fairness. Not from our vantage point. Whether it operates from a broader cosmic perspective of love is another question. But from my vantage point, I don't see that when a child dies that that makes any sense whatsoever in relationship to the pain and suffering or to that child's life. But I have to let go of that righteousness of the world is wrong if I am at all to live with any sense of clarity to see that and to be able to respond to it with effective action. So what we're really talking about here is what is effective action. Because if we breed fairness into the picture and then operate according to that standard, we then hit and antagonize the violence and rage that we see externally with our own. And the Buddha was real clear that the only antidote to anger is love not more anger anger perpetuates itself either internal or external how we respond to our own sense of anger as it arises within us is also that same edict that same question of whether we can't stand it to be in our life and shouldn't be any part of me that feels this kind of rage or whether we can bring that sense of softness and self-acceptance and thereby bring love to anger. Now love in itself sounds a little Pollyannish. So I would substitute the word love with the word understanding because they're actually the same word. When we're willing to spend some time and actually learn about something, we are offering that thing the greatest gift that we can impart, that we have to offer that. And that is our gift of presence. And that presence itself is a statement of affection and connectedness. So when we have backed ourselves into the corner, the justice corner, this is unjust. There's a great story that uh, Ram Dass tells, but before I tell that, I'll tell my own story of my jogging story. And I jog uh, down across the university area up towards the Burt Gilman Trail and then out, and there are a number of crosswalks where cars very plainly and clearly see the crosswalk sign with the (coughs) yellow triangle. And lo and behold, many times during the, the jog, cars will crash through that and, you know, violate my space, which is I have the right of way. So this morning, believe it or not, I was jogging along. I can get very... (laughs) And a car crashed through, and I was outraged that they would be so insensitive to that sort of thing. I always point to the crosswalk sign (laughs) to show my disagreement. So that happened uh, very early on in my jog. And then I thought I sort of set the world right. You see, I mean, that car did it, and I showed him that he had done something wrong. So I was jogging through the next 
crosswalk and the car was coming and it didn't slow down but by God I was out there and I was going to and it went whoom right in front of me and it just I mean it missed me by about a foot and in my righteousness I was going to show him and he was going to show me how <laughs> out of control we can become it's, it's we play with the righteousness as if you know people are just going to have to obey this this is it never really. I mean I could have been a fly on that uh, windshield very easily and to make this point there is a real nice story that Ram Dass tells that I would like to share for those of you who haven't heard it and he um, was with Maharaji his uh, guru his teacher in India and uh, every evening a whole group of Westerners would come and have darshan or uh, like a sangha meeting uh, with the teacher and one time Maharaji said to the Ramdas tonight and for the rest of the week we won't be meeting in the evening so tell everybody not to come so Ramdas went around and told everybody not to come and that first night uh, after that was said a few people decided to go anyway and so a few people went and lo and behold Maharaji had satsang with these people and the rest of them felt that there was so the next night everybody came except Ramdas because Maharaji again told Ramdas that day for no one to come to make sure that nobody came but every night then for that week Ramdas was the only person that didn't come everybody else came and had darshan for hours at a time and played and had a great time so Ramdas got very embittered by this and went to Maharaji and said you're not playing fair and Maharaji said hit him on the head or something in a very loving way <laughs> and said fairness has nothing to do with truth learn that learn that here and now but it, uh, it's a hard one isn't it it's a hard one because we wanted to have we wanted to obey our instructions we want it to we want life to be lived you know really according to how we think the heart needs to express itself in action nobody steps in front of my place in line everything is orderly people go on the green light and stop on the walk the crosswalks and it's very very difficult to get a sense of how that place so actively and fully in our life and that's really what the homework was about this last time and I hope all of you did the homework it was meant to for with some degree of sincerity for you to look at those below the level of of what our actions are those fairness issues that we have all confronted those parental tapes those childhood uh, beliefs that I was taught to do this and this is what a proper child does and I just I remember when parents came over to our house I was supposed to go up and say how do you do my name is you know I'm and then shake hands and then be quiet and go upstairs and that has played a certain role in how I think the universe should manifest and so to begin to look at these tapes that are in us these feelings of goodness to be good to be kind to be loving to be to be to be and then how that translates because our minds don't accommodate that don't accommodate that at all and how in our very actions like Christmas shopping that's a perfect example it's like you got to do it I don't know how you feel but when this there's a certain pressure that I feel that when this time of year comes you know and there's certain uh, I have nieces and and they're expecting something you're too young to know that they have too much already so you you know 
they expect the uncle to give them something. So you go out and shop, and you don't know what to buy a 12-year-old. What do you buy a 12-year-old? I have no idea what you buy. <laughs> and so you spend all, you know, you pressure yourself, and I just, you go through all this stuff, and it becomes, and I feel resentful for having to do this. You see, now, where does that come? Well, I'm a dutiful uncle. I've got to, you know, my nieces are expecting. There's a whole anticipation. And the underlying strategy of that is I will be a good uncle and provide what I'm supposed to do as an uncle and follow the script. But underneath that is a resentment for me. Now, pick your own scenario. Don't leave me hanging out here. <laughs> because each one of us have the scenario that we can put our place of resentment. Where our next door neighbor expects us to, or our friend, or our sick neighbor. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that resentment in the midst of the, of the uh, imperative that we feel to act? Well, if we include the resentment in the picture, then we have some ability to act according to clarity. But if the resentment drives us behind the scenes so that we're completely confused and ignorant that it's even pushing us, all we'll do is get angry. It will continue to grow and fester in us and we'll find ourselves snapping. Why do I always have to do the dishes? But if we bring it out, and it may be uh, that very thing that allows for effective dialoguing with the other person so that you can work it out. But in any case, it won't, uh, it won't stay there. It won't, it won't uh, grow roots into our system. <clears throat> so to remember, I think, as an important point tonight, that fairness is not the point. Love is the point. Fairness is of the mind. Love is of the heart. Fairness divides. Love heals. Fairness is from a single perspective. Love is universally. From universal clarity. And so the question becomes whether our actions are based from self-righteous view or from a much more open, accommodating view that really looks at much more than just the rightness of the situation. Includes that. It includes the resentment. It includes the feeling of the resentment but isn't bound to the action or the reaction to the resentment. So that's fairness. And on to control. <laughs> now control is an interesting one again it's the same thing though you see it's like holding everything according to what I want it to be where it should all be we have places for everything and sometimes in hospice care there's a particular syndrome I hope I'm there's no one in this place that has it but there are some people many people that do where um Everything is, has to be in its exact place. And we go in there and even if you move the chair up close to the bed, the patient becomes uh, confused, disoriented, and tells you, no, the chair is to be in that place only. And you can just feel the mind being so tight, you know, just so caught in that sense of stability of form, that the forms of the world, the expression of things of the world, are the way that that mind finds and rests in stability. And move the things, it moves the mind, and then shatters any sense of, of self-worth within that movement. I know sometimes uh, when I was uh, younger in meditation, I would come back with certain qualities of mind that I wanted to nourish all day long and I would get in uh, to a work environment and I was trying to perpetuate very quietly that sense of inward peace and stillness and mindfulness and focus and then the boss would yell at me and I would just like fly out or somebody would put more cases on my caseload than they're supposed to or one case would ask more of me than I could give and I just lost it 
It was like, where was that? And it just blew up. It blew up because I lost control. I was trying to protect my inward space and also just allow so much of life to get in so that I could maintain that sense of control and stability. And if anything more came in, then I didn't have any place to put it. That is not right meditation, by the way. Because, you see, fundamentally when life is out of control, it reminds us, of our, uh, reminds us of our vulnerability and our death. And it's from that instability of what life really is. I mean, it's not a stable thing. So the meditator, when we begin to perceive life from disorder... So the meditator, when we begin to perceive life from disorder and to begin to actually allow the disorder to be orderly, you see, it's not as if we live with some sort of sense of of, um, insecurity all the time in a Dharma world, but that with but as we abide in the way things are, the way things are is orderly even if the circumstances aren't because you've learned to harmonize with the ups and downs and whims and circumstances of life and of completely different orientation than requiring each thing to be in a certain place. And so we can find stability even in that instability. You know, one of the in coupled relationships of marriage counselor was telling me that one of the money of course is one of the issues that most couples have but one of the issues the third issue is uh, cleanliness and mess one one couple one partner in that relationship has learned to be comfortable in mess one the other partner has only learned to be comfortable in cleanliness and yet both are comfortable you see but I mean God but, but one's but from the cleanly person's view mess has no place it's like in, unstable it's out of control what is that pile doing in the middle of the <laughs> and from a messy person's point of view who grew up in that kind of way it's completely comfortable there's not the same kind of rigidity but then there isn't any sense of the value of cleanliness either I don't mean cleanliness in terms of sanitation I mean it's in terms of things being around it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, conflict that comes in there so which is right see there isn't any right that's the point. In Buddhism, there's no right. That's the awfulness of Buddhism. <laughs> because it's, there's no blueprint for action. It's not a description of, in these events, these are the actions you take to produce this end result. It's not a system like that. Or that would just be a form of bondage. If we had to read a text to find out how to act, wouldn't that be bondage? So we bring the clarity. We see that even in the causality, in the, the ferment of our anxiety, of our out-of-controlness, of our lack of influence, of our... Well, here's an example. I'm, I was the director of a hospice program, and recently I 
uh, started working very, very part-time in the program, just kind of getting some extra money because I, I need it. And, um, but not as a director. They don't have directors in the programs anymore. And yet, I'm still running on directorness in my mind, you know. And I think, oh, I would never do that. If I were there, I would. If I were the director, and I go through the day (laughs) trying to put down, trying to let go of my previous orientation to a program. Very difficult to do. Very difficult to do. And yet, you see, because that stability for me was having complete control. It was being the director of the program. When you come in as a staff person in which the, the director is absent and you begin to see the kind of disarray that uh, I used to respond to, it's unsettling. And, you know, I'm, but I'm, you work with it. You work with it. You, you work with it as, a, as, a, uh, as an opportunity to sort of expand our horizons, my horizons my availability to be different in a situation because really what we're trying to do here is to be free of conditions not to be dependent upon conditions for our happiness so now we move into the third and perhaps the most difficult area here and that's um, being discounted Because I think fear, uh, anger sometimes arises from the fear of, of not existing. You know, you're in a meeting and you express your opinion and the person doesn't honor it or doesn't even listen to it. Or your spouse doesn't do that. A strangle them, <laughs> if we're honest. Because your voice wasn't heard. Your voice wasn't given credit. It wasn't given fair representation. That's a disorderly universe. That's not fair, is it? Everyone should have some ability to influence. At least hear me and then decide that it's no good. I mean, that's because fundamentally we aren't being even considered we aren't even being included there's no there's no um, acknowledgement that we exist just completely negated another jogging story when I'm (laughs) you learn a lot when you jog jogging down the street and you know sometimes you're, I'm in a good mood and so I'll say hi, hello not knowing the people just hello no response <laughs> why that what's wrong with them <laughs> they negated me see in that moment you know I didn't exist to them I could have been you know nothing nothing air passed them <laughs> I'm not air damn it <laughs> No, it's, but that's a very interesting feeling, that moment uh, in which no one responds to you. Hi, how are you? <laughs> and doesn't your mind immediately recoil, our minds immediately recoil and like, what's in some kind of retaliation, you see? Some way to get back, to, to jab, to hurt back. I was hurt. Well, the next time he passes me, I'm not going to say anything to him either. <laughs> I'll get him. <laughs> in that sense, we are completely out of control in that moment of negation. The relationship is destroyed. Now, here comes the main point here. The point of all this is to never lose the relationship. Never. Never unhook the relationship. When you're angry and you just thrash that other person verbally and, or negate them or just <coughs> dismiss them, you can feel that you're perpetuating that same reactivity in the other person. You're just causing... You're just putting your spin, you're just like top spinning. You took this top and it was spinning 
at that amount so you took the same spin and you put it on another top and it just keeps doing that to tops we just keep spinning with that kind of reactivity and a meditator someone who wants to live with self-awareness won't lose contact you may for a while you may break it off and and, and then take, take some time out but you want to continue the relationship you want some way to connect with that person if you lose the connection that's it there's nothing left and you've left that person out of your heart so we have to continue or maintain that relationship and so even in the worst case scenario of negation of being dismissed still we have to maintain that relationship next time jogging the guy comes up like hi how are you again same thing happens our job is to keep coming back because unless we feel the hurt we'll act out of it so in that negation and as badly as that feel we just that's it we run with that I jog with that bad feeling there it is it's right there with me if it is behind the scenes then I will make sure that that person never gets my hello and that's reacting to the feeling not moving with the feeling you just let it run with you and you run pretty fast with that kind of feeling (laughs) because when it moves in us not with clarity so that we feel it but behind the scenes then what our actions come out of is revenge of sharing the hurt we still want contact but the way we do that is to share the hurt share the pain hurt the other person and then but we in this tradition we step out of reactivity into presence come back to who we were before the anger and dwell with the anger with that sense of presence with that sense of clarity not trying to defend ourselves or blame it holding it holding it because now we have learned in this meditation how to hold the unpleasant how to hold the anger how to hold the discomfort how to hold the sense of self unworthiness that is so often tied to that kind of negation see what we believe when somebody negates you if we react that strongly is we we believe that they really discovered who we were we're not worth listening to and that person is showing or manifesting in his actions what we feel about ourselves that I'm not really worth listening to I'm not really worth being taken account taken into account and that person found me out discovered me that's why I had to do something to him because that was my worst secret most highly prized secret and it was discovered so we let the secret sit with us here it is right there when we let it sit with us just means we hold it doesn't mean we have to respond to it doesn't mean we have to react to it doesn't mean that we have to see life through it we just let it sit we don't do anything with it we don't do violence to it we don't become angry at our own self anger there we are we just sit at it we sit at it we rest with us and then we can effectively work in a different way we become immensely powerful but not in an egocentric way in our ability to hold pain and our ability to hold pain is directly related to our ability to sustain compassion for compassion only closes down in our inability to hold pain when you see someone hurting and you don't and you react to that and turn away because it's such a terrible scene I've got to, then you have closed yourself off 
from the love of life from the connectedness of life because of our inability to hold pain but if you can hold your own pain you can also hold the pain of another and once we stay in contact with people even if they've negated us we allow the door to be open to compassion we begin to see that person for why they negated us for their own problems and their own sense of pain isn't there a danger of abuse of self-abuse and what you, I, feel, I feel really uncomfortable about you know, the question is is there a sense of self abuse of this and we'll get to this after the break but to remember that clarity is not retreating it's not giving away our boundaries it's not losing our sense of limitations even it's not saying you know when you've had enough you know when somebody is doing things that is moving into your own psychic space in a way that's detrimental to yourself but the movement of a spiritual heart is always towards a being able to hold and sustain and being able to rest in stability with whatever is occurring even the rejection of another the rejection of another is not what is that it's nothing what is it showing us but our own sense of self unworthiness can I hold myself in worthiness that sense of rejection isn't something that anyone's doing to us we're doing it to ourselves because it's resonating in a particular black hole that we have in ourselves can I hold that black hole So we'll stay there. We'll take a five-minute break and come back and have a discussion, which I'm sure will be lively.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.